0: The CU2.0 Podcast. Welcome to the CU2.0 Podcast. This is your host, Robert McGarvey. Today's guest, Cliff Rosenthal. He's the man who literally wrote the book on community financial development institutions. He's also a man who knows pretty much everything there is to know about the history of credit unions, which he's written about in his book, too. We talk about that book, Democratizing Finance, in this wide-ranging, interesting, provocative podcast. It's a podcast where you will hear opinions, pretty strong opinions, about credit union reaction to the CFPB, where Cliff served for a time as an administrator. You'll also hear about credit union executives who don't necessarily want to lend to or serve the poor. Is that really an integral part of the credit union mission? Is essential for being a good credit union executive, for being a good credit union? Interesting thoughts you'll hear in this podcast. It's a podcast that pulls no punches. Uh, Cliff is very open-minded in a lot of ways, so don't expect to hear anything dogmatic. You'll also hear about some true heroes of CDFI, people like Bill Bynum at Hope Credit Union, who sat for an early podcast in this series some months ago. You can listen to that, dig that up in the archives. Now, a scary factoid that Cliff gives us, and it's something for you to think about, is in the early 1990s there were about 13,000 banks and thrifts and a similar number of credit unions. Today there are maybe 5,500 of each. He figures that in 10 years there will be about 3,000 credit unions. When does the number get too small to count? When is that happening? I'm not sure, but that day it may come. Now He also insists that for many credit unions that focus on community development, the margins are better. It's in some ways easier to succeed doing that. Why? Well, you're not competing with Chase. You're not competing against Bank of America. You have customers, members that they just don't want to serve. Playing field is open. Get to do good. Also run a good, successful institution. Something to think about. Looking forward to this. We actually have a, a minor news hook, if you will, here to discuss. Oh, yeah. Which is the uh, Sanders Ocasio-Cortez proposal yeah. to enlist post offices as kind, yes. of, kind of banks, which, as I'm sure yes. you know, the, both trades have attacked as steal, stealing a baby's milk. And uh, <laughs>
1: how
0: how sincere are they in that attack? And is there anything, in fact, wrong with this proposal?
1: Well, I haven't seen the details of the proposal. Uh, in a former capacity, I did manage to see what done uh, was an original concept for this a number of years ago, which frankly at the time didn't impress me much as a business plan. Uh, I've got to assume that some more thought has gone into it since. But uh, you know, I need to be convinced that this is a uh, this is a viable uh, idea. As you probably know, the postal system itself is in significant trouble, partly not through their own doings because of a. Uh, some machinations in terms of how they were supposed to record their pension obligations. So uh, the post office system itself is uh, not on sound financial footing. And I guess I have sort of an instinctive reaction uh, against hooking a, um, a, a a new and untried initiative as, uh, as perhaps in part at least um, a bailout for uh, an existing system
0: that's in some trouble. I, I, I don't disagree with you. On the other hand, something bothers me about the virulence of the opposition of mm. the trade associations, <laughs> where mm. uh, the way I see the numbers, roughly 25% of households in America are un, underbanked or unbanked, and which tells me some financial institutions, including many credit unions, don't want them. Yep.
1: And, mm-hmm.
0: and, and if you don't want them, why do you care if they go someplace else?
1: who cares i think you need to disaggregate those questions i mean you know one of them is the the issue of competition from credit unions and i hear you uh, and 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 certainly the virulence of the response is something that uh, that that makes me very uh, very uncomfortable credit unions should not need to fear uh this other entity coming into the the business Whether that other entity makes sense in terms of the overall public policy, that's really a different question. So uh, I'm I'm with you in terms of uh, uh, having a dismay at the virulence of the response. I guess the context that I see, and as, as you know, I've recently published my book, Democratizing Finance Origins of the Community Development Financial Institutions Movement, which takes a look back at, at the origins of the credit union movement uh, as a genuinely working-class populist movement that really uh, was created in order to address the issues of usury at the time. So uh, it gives me, uh, you know, a, a lot of dismay to think that uh, 110 some odd years after the um, after the uh, birth of credit unions in the United States, we still have such a significant problem of unbanked and underbanked people.
0: And credit unions were founded, and you know this much better than I do, to, when a guy needed 500 bucks to put a new roof on his house or to buy a used car to get to work, banks didn't want his business. They didn't want to make the loan. So he could either go to a loan shark, he could go to legal loan sharks like household finance or beneficial finance, or... In some cases, if he worked at a factory with a credit union, he could borrow money from there, and that was the best deal of all.
1: Absolutely, uh, those are the roots of credit unions, and uh, I'd like to think that uh, that those sorts of loans are still possible and practiced by credit unions, certainly more than banks. But nonetheless, there are, there are obviously significant gaps in 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 financial security uh, among a large portion of the population today. In your
0: book, you also talk about the ambivalence of many credit unions to, let's call it community development financial activities, where at, at least some credit unions really didn't see that as the road they wanted to go down. Some didn't see it as the road to their financial
1: security. Am, am I right about that? I think you are, and I think uh, as I study the history uh, including some of the um, the, uh, the early works that are that are out there there has been this, uh, this ambivalence uh, within the credit union movement that uh, there is um, certainly over the last half century in the United States, there's been a growing middle class, which represented a pretty good fit for credit unions, uh, a secure population to loan to and so forth. that needed those financial services um, going out further on the risk spectrum to people who are like the, the, the B, C and D credits. Is not something that uh, a good portion of the credit union industry has been comfortable with for um, many years. I see encouraging signs into uh, in in the respect of uh, more credit unions, including some rather large ones, multi-billion-dollar ones, refocusing and getting more into community development. Certainly, that hasn't been the main focus of the uh, the credit union movement as we've seen it over the last 30, 40 years. Now, you worked at
0: the, the uh, CFPB,
1: right? That's correct, for two years, almost two
0: years. Now, I remember being at a GAC meeting mm-hmm. short, shortly after CFPB came into business. And I, the the sense I got was that many credit union executives had finally seen Satan, and Satan was the CFPB, yes. uh, which shocked me because I thought the CFPB was the enemy of predatory banks (laughs) and i wrote about that people weren't really pleased about my opinion (laughs) did i interpret that reaction among many in the Mm -hmm. credit union industry correctly and were you and if i did were you surprised (laughs) by that because it surprised the heck out of me these are your friends
1: man (laughs) yeah your perception is absolutely accurate i remember going to the gac a month or two up before I went to the CFPB, but my, you know, the fact that I was going over uh, to the CFPB was, was already public information. And any number of credit union colleagues for many years, either uh, facetiously, semi-facetiously, or not facetiously at all, said, oh, you're going over to the dark side. Let me put it this way. Uh, for many decades, NCUA was, quote, the enemy. NCUA regulations were what people focused their uh their negative energy on then the CFPB came along and I think CFPB replaced NCUA as the most hated um, regulator and that was a source of considerable um dis- dismay to me also because I do think that the that the CFPB uh, overall has been a very important ally for consumers and I would certainly like to think that, uh, that that credit unions are on the side of uh, consumers.
0: That, that, to me, is the exact nub no of this, where CFPB is, protect, is formed to cr- protect consumers, and credit unions supposedly are in the business of being friends to consumers. So
1: why aren't you allies? Basically, it's about regulation. Credit unions don't want more regulation, pure and simple. I'm sympathetic to, to you know to a degree on it particularly the small credit unions you know have an increasingly difficult time keeping up with the compliance requirements the cybersecurity needs and so forth it's a very very tough business for small credit unions the large ones i perhaps have a little bit of sympathy for if you're a 10 billion 50 billion dollar credit union which there are few at least now uh, i think you have considerable capacity What dismayed me as well was that on some issues, such as the mortgage lending regulations, there was, as you say, a virulent response on the part of credit unions. To some degree, we saw, let's say, um, consulting and legal firms whipping up the opposition to it uh, and threatening uh, all sorts of dire consequences that really scared some credit unions, even ones that weren't in the mortgage business or were doing so little of it that they wouldn't have been affected you know cynically i've got to say this is the nature of the business the, the trade association business and uh you know the vendor business as well that you uh, that you certainly highlight worst case scenarios some of which may happen but many of which are, are not relevant and you do that to uh to increase uh, business Fighting the regulators is, is good business for a significant of a segment out there.
0: Well, I think where you see that really clearly is with uh, alleged threats to the no tax status for credit unions. And yes. I've, I've talked at GAC with what I call shoebox credit unions that were going to go protest their member of the House about taxing credit unions. These guys, they didn't have any taxes to pay. Not in a trillion years. Yeah. So why do yeah. you protest this? Well, and that's because they were whipped up by the, by the trade associations that this, this was evil.
1: There's a symbiotic relationship, it seems to me, between the, uh, the lobbyists for credit unions and the lobbyists for the banking industries, That, uh, that each of them, a significant portion of their work, is uh, involved in, in fending off, uh, in repelling the attacks of the, uh, of the others.
0: Uh, what I what I think is saddest about that is that credit unions have much more in common with community banks than with any other kinds of institutions, and I see them both as somewhat endangered species, where non banks are chewing up some of the business on one side, and then the big banks just get bigger and bigger. It's like the Walmart effect. I mean, when we were kids, every town had a thousand independent mm-hmm. pharmacies and a thousand independent hardware stores. I live in yeah. Phoenix and. I could maybe take you to one independent pharmacy, I think. There's one that I know. Mm-hmm. Phoenix Phoenix mm-hmm. is the fifth biggest city.
1: And yeah I see the same uh, thing
0: happening with community banks and credit unions.
1: Well, yeah, I don't know if their interests are aligned. I think that there are some real competitive factors, particularly in smaller markets for where credit unions are, are, are quite large. So there you know, there there is a basis for, you know, competition between them but i think you're right in the sense that the the dynamics of the financial um, industry are are basically uh undeniable it's the concentration of financial assets particularly deposits in a smaller number of larger institutions and this has been uh, aggravated and accelerated by the great uh, recession uh, more and more money in the in the in the biggest banks of the united states Community banks, uh, certainly have been threatened by this. They find it very difficult to, uh, to approach the capital markets and raise additional funds. Statistic I, I generally like to, to cite is this. By the early 90s, there were approximately 13,000 banks plus thrifts on the one hand, and almost the same number of credit unions uh, on the other hand. Today, there are about 5,500 of each of those respective institutions. So I think the trend is certainly very clear, smaller, a smaller number of uh, generally larger uh, institutions. And I don't think I have to tell you that the number of credit unions in the United States is declining by, uh, in an average year, 200 or 300 institutions. So if you look at the handwriting on the wall uh, 10 years from now, there'll probably be uh, 3,000, 3,500 credit unions in the United States.
0: And I remember Jim Blaine telling me some years ago that his best friends politically were the smallest credit unions because they were the ones who got sympathy from legislators. And he said, when I go in, I'm just another banker. And I I think Jim was somewhat exaggerating how he was (laughs) doing Poor but, Jim. Uh, yes, I know. <laughs> but I, I was always touched that he, you know he said, "Really, I I want these people with me because they are seen as as the face of the local community. I'm not."
1: That's right. Just despite the fact that um, that state employees credit union, I think, is one of the the best community oriented credit unions in the country with 200 branches around the state. But yeah, sure, Jim is Jim Plains. Uh, when he was there, was certainly seen as a big bad uh, credit
0: union by some folks. Well, he also has, in North Carolina, a huge fleet of fee-free ATMs, Yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: and part of the reason he told me was to torment Bank of America, but the other part was to benefit small credit unions. His Mm -hmm. advice to them is, tell your members, come use ours, they're not going to pay a
1: fee. And that's great, and he particularly provided back office support to the Latino Community Credit Union, um, based in Durham, but with about 11 branches. Which is really the most successful um, CDCU startup of the last 20 years in bringing services to low income and minority and other groups. Serves a largely immigrant population, grew from nothing in the year 2000 to several hundred million in assets with maybe 70,000 members. And this has been possible in large part due to uh, the help of two institutions one is self help. In Durham, and the other is state employees credit union. So uh, he's uh, he's really delivered a lot in terms of bringing, uh, helping to bring services to uh, to uh, to uh, disadvantaged communities.
0: Well, he's a guy who I always thought truly was a credit union guy, where some credit union CEOs I see as wannabe bankers. and uh, they made the wrong turn in life, so they took the low-paying job instead. (laughs) I don't know how low a pay it is now either, to tell you the truth. Now, should every credit union be a CDFI?
1: I don't think so. I mean, you know, uh, it's not simply a designation. You have to have a mission and a focus and a target market for which uh, that makes sense. And there are many communities in the United States that are doing just fine. They don't need institutions specifically focused on community development. There are you know, they're uh, folks working in various industries and trades who are, you know, who are doing pretty well. Credit unions are important for them. They provide great service, and there, there's not really a mandate for for every single credit union in the United States to become a community development institution. I would hope that every credit union in the United States would offer accessible credit at in, in small amounts that. At reasonable rates and would not restrict itself only to the uh, A credits but it does not mean that they have to become a CDFI.
0: Now let's go back to a point we touched on. Do do most credit unions actually want low-income members?
1: I don't know. You'd probably have to have to ask them. I I, I think it would be rare to have some that would say gee we really don't want those folks here on the other hand, their policies may not be particularly attractive to the uh, small depositors or the small bo- uh, borrowers or, or immigrants uh, and, and, and so forth. So I doubt that it's uh, explicitly uh, or, uh, or obviously in any way some sort of uh, signing or messaging that says, we don't want you here. Uh, on the other hand, I, there are many institutions – uh, who probably do not uh, particularly market to those segments of the population.
0: Well, you go into the big banks; they do not market into that population. No. I, I don't know that Chase would say on the record, "Geez, we don't really want poor people." No, of course not. But of off, course not. Mm-hmm. Off off the record, they'd say, "Why'd you ask such a stupid question?" Of course, we don't want
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> now, the fact the the, the objective fact is. Serving a an account with 100, 150 bucks in it is not profitable. It's not profitable for bank, and it's not profitable for most credit unions either. Uh, you need to you need a balance.
0: Your former uh, job has a bunch of data that says that in many respects, community development financial institutions can be more competitive than credit unions that try to compete with big banks. And, yeah, you know, I think about it. It's it's hard to compete and win against Chase. They're really good at what they do, and they're really rich. And they're so yeah. rich when they make a mistake, they can just move on and do something else. Whereas if you're competing for members whom no one particularly wants to serve, yes, it's it's kind of open playing field, and you get to feel good about what you're doing.
1: And in many cases, you probably can achieve a better margin because you're not competing uh, for the last uh, 25 basis points. You're probably making loans that are uh, a bit more profitable, assuming people pay them back, which most people, including the great majority of uh, low-income people do.
0: Bill Bynum tells me he makes good money making those small-dollar loans in, in Mississippi and Alabama.
1: Bill is an extraordinary leader who's done great work and they've also managed uh, to my understanding to uh to bring mobile services yes to a population that's not pr- predominantly seen as you know sort of a you know cutting ed- edge or early adopter of mobile technology so uh, i think that's been you know powerful for for bill and it's really essential because um he serves a pretty you know widely scattered population including folks who the nearest bank or nearest financial institution is not around the corner to travel, you know, to drive 30 miles, even to a local credit union, can, uh, can be a little uh, time-consuming and, and even costly. I actually did a
0: story on him and that um, some years ago, I'm thinking five years ago. And he told me, and it's very obvious if you think about it, he said, my members don't have home computers. My members don't right. have home, home Internet. So, yeah, we could have online banking, but who'd use it? Whereas they all have cell phones. And that's kind of the end of his argument. But you sit there and say, man, that's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and of course, there's the example from, from Kenya, where something similar is playing out. That's right. From PESA, uh, yes. And he said stuff like this really helps people not not overdraw their account, for instance. You don't have to guess what your balance is. Just look, man. It's in your pocket. It's in your phone. Right. And so I, I view him as a great innovator who's showing that there is, you can serve people, but you can also be a successful institution if you want to.
1: Yeah, I think they're really outstanding.
0: And he's also profited, and I don't use the word profit in terms of finances, uh, from essentially being given branches that banks didn't want. Uh, That's right. I I think he's picked up six or so in recent years, and he's expanded into markets like Birmingham, Alabama, that, that one bank was pulling
1: out of and said hey you want the branches and he said sure and some of them i think he's had to, he's had to pay for and you know they they were not necessarily the most attractive franchises uh he's gone not necessarily because it was a great business opportunity but because really they were the last institution in town yep. and around so yeah so uh not uh, I, I think it's great if uh, some of them have been profitable i know bill has done some of those uh some of those deals even though it didn't look like a great business.
0: Well, he's as you know, truly passionate and evangelical about yes. the the need to bring financial basic financial services to an under an unserved population. That is just plain wrong not to not to bring these services to them. And then it's up to them to use it. but he, he views this as, as a mission. It's something one should do, and I, I agree with him. I assume you agree with him, too, on
1: that. Absolutely, and uh, Bill, I think Bill is one of the heroes of this movement. So what's
0: the future of CDFIs?
1: I would say that the future of CDFIs is good, almost surprisingly good. Three years ago, uh, two, three years ago after the election, I was rather concerned with, uh, what was going to become of this, this, this movement. Credit unions are not dependent on CDFI, the CDFI fund and its appropriations. Many other CDFIs, particularly the nonprofit loan funds are. And, uh, I think that there was a real fear that, uh, the CDFI fund, which is sort of at the epicenter of this, would be abolished. And indeed, um, three successive uh, OMB submissions for this administration called for essentially the elimination of the CDFI fund. I suspected that had that happened, it would have led to considerable consolidation and retraction in the broader CDFI field. Um, but in what it seems to me really uh, remarkable political circumstance, there's been bipartisan support for the CDFI Fund so uh, that the appropriations, uh, notwithstanding OMB's request, the appropriations of the CDFI Fund have been at near record levels for the last two years, and I expect for the third year uh, as well. So in short, what I think that means is that community development finance, after 25 years of the CDFI Fund, uh, has established itself in the um, public policy and economic uh, uh, development arena, pretty solidly that uh, it's I would say the most uh, valued brand in community development. I'd say that uh, more institutions, particularly more credit unions, and some that are quite substantial in size, have refocused their mission to become CDFIs. So that's a basis for my optimism that that I think that uh, this field is. Uh, in pretty good shape and is going to be a part of the um, the uh, the landscape for uh, a good many years to come.
0: What would you point to as the greatest successes of CDFIs?
1: In my book, uh, I try to look at a 200-year history of efforts to provide uh, to provide access to um, capital and credit for excluded communities, people who are excluded on the basis of poverty, on the basis of race, on the basis of geography. And it's taken at various times a combination of philanthropy, government intervention, and grassroots movement to to bring a a success such as what CDFI has represented. I think the major innovation of of the CDFI Fund is this, that it's not a loan program primarily. CDFI Fund invests capital, equity capital, uh, grants, if you will, in institutions. It's it's engaged in institution building, not simply uh, repeating a year-to-year program that provides a little operating support, a little project support, something like that. Um, it's built institutions uh, that make credit decisions and investment decisions based on local needs. I think that really distinguishes it from uh, any of the other efforts over the, you know, Certainly, the last 50 years, and arguably the last 200 years, um, to provide, provide financial access to uh, excluded communities.
0: And you say that CDFIs have had bipartisan support, right? That's very yeah. unusual in Washington.
1: That—that's my point. It, it, it's pretty close to unique, uh, and particularly, you know, this is a domestic. Uh, this is a domestic policy. Sometimes you can get agreement on foreign policy, though not so much lately. But in terms of domestic policy and an and appropriated program that requires federal funding, I think it's it's really quite rare for it to an effort like this to be pretty non-controversial and to win support from uh, from both sides of the the aisle. So I give uh, great credit to, to these uh, to the folks who've uh, who've led this field.
0: Now, do you call this? Uh, a- it's in
1: an industry or a movement. Ah. You know, I talk quite a bit about that in the in in my book. And what I, you know, what I basically wind up is describing this as a field. There are various types of CDFIs. Credit unions, of course, community development banks, community development venture funds, micro funds, uh microfinance funds, and and so forth. They're basically um siloed, if you will. There's not a tremendous amount of interaction. Between them, and, you know, we're uh, all collegial, work together, uh, certainly share an interest in federal government uh, providing support for this field. But I compare it to the origins of the credit union movement, which was truly a movement. As you know, uh, it was largely funded in its first few decades by Edward Filene, who funds a campaign to uh, establish state laws and to organize credit unions around the United States. And credit unions um, grew virally for the first half century. You know, the credit unions were a disruptor in the best possible sense. Here you had lo- working people, low-income people who otherwise would go to usurers. And um, these the uh, proselytizers for credit unions come along. They introduce the idea to people, and literally these credit unions spring up um, overnight. I describe a meeting in 1933 that Edward, Edward Filene goes to, in which there are a thousand people. It's a mass meeting. Filene is up there. He's someone who's always been behind the scenes, never a charismatic person, but he's he's greeted ecstatically as someone who is really uh, helps to transform the economic prospects of working people in this country. So there was really a movement, uh, a very strong movement spirit there. There was a commitment to democracy at every level from the local level in terms of how credit unions are structured to really a vision of democracy worldwide uh, that the cooperative movement would represent. So um, I never, uh, honestly, though I was a co-founder of the CDFI movement, um, and field uh, that I really wrote the first concept paper for it. It has never really been a transformational movement in the same way that credit unions were for much of their early history.
0: Well, banks did not want working class people as as customers for all practical purposes.
1: Nor did they want credit unions because you know in these sort of state by state campaigns that uh, that Filene helped uh, helped fund. Banks and installment lenders uh, strongly opposed the, the formation of credit unions.
0: That makes sense. And, you know, as we discussed, you still see some of that tension today.
1: Yeah, you
0: you it, sure do. Even you though sure in ma- many respects they're, they should be the best allies, but they they don't quite yeah. see it that way. So you're essentially optimistic. I am now. I, I think what, what continues to worry me is the growing income disparity. We're, we're almost returning to a period of the middle ages where a handful of people have 99.9% of the wealth and the rest scramble with the little slivers left on the floor.
1: Yeah, I think inequality is a, a colossal issue uh for the United States, one with the uh the potential to be politically and socially destabilizing. How do credit unions fit into it? Well, we're not income transfer mechanisms to reduce inequality in that sense. But we can. what we can do for sure is mitigate the damage. I mean, the fact that people are going to payday lenders and parting with a substantial amount of their income to pay for, you know, for interest and fees on this, you know, it, it's a shame and it's an outrage. And to the degree that credit unions could put those sorts of – lending mechanisms out of business by providing affordable, small uh, to medium-sized credit, um, they can at least uh, mitigate the damage of, uh, of, of financial insecurity that so many people face in this country. I mean, you've seen the statistics, and they're really shocking. I mean, something like 40% of the of the households in this country could not come up with $400 for an a an, an, an unanticipated emergency expense.
0: And that's, that's the thing. I've written some about so-called predatory lenders, pawn shops, payday loans. I've also talked mm-hmm. with employees there. I've talked with customers of theirs. And you don't wake up in the morning saying, geez, I want to go get a payday loan. What you do is you wake up in the morning and your boyfriend's knocked your two front teeth out and you need some money to patch that hole in your mouth. And who's going to give it to you? That's yeah. your problem. And yeah. are you a, are you a bad person for going to a payday loan? No, it's your only choice. You're you're doing what you can mm-hmm. do. You go down to Chase mm-hmm. see if they'll give you five thousand dollars to fix your mouth. They ain't gonna, but you know, give it a whirl. Uh, you can go to a credit union and see how you fare there. Payday loan guy will probably give you the loan. And that that's the tragedy. We have these people with these immense needs, that are legitimate needs. And we need to find ways that are better for all to fix those needs, and credit unions could be that part of that solution.
1: I agree. Uh, uh, they could be, um, and some are, but uh, more can and 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 should be. That you know, that's why the credit unions were created, and uh, I, I think that uh, the need is is not diminished it's different. It looks different than it did a hundred years ago. Uh, they're not usurers at the door literally, uh, that, uh, there were during the time of Edward Ferlin. That's what got him into credit unions. I mean, that literally, uh, the workers would leave his plant, uh, every Friday and the usurers would be at the door. Well, it isn't like that so much.
0: Every factory in, in North Jersey and, uh, New York had a five for six guy, uh, he, he ah. him, he'd lend you five, and then you owed him six on payday next. Is right?
1: Week. Oh, I haven't he heard them. about this particular practice. No.
0: And usually, that th- th- that was the sum involved—five dollars. uh
1: mm-hmm.
0: that's back when five dollars was meaningful. You could buy a bag of groceries for five bucks. Sure. Uh, and most of them were were organized crime connected or related. So there were threats of violence, et cetera, were more implicit than than heard. So that, that was this immense social problem well into the 50s, and I think what finally ended that problem was the proliferation of credit cards, where yeah. credit, credit cards became a way to get a small dollar loan without any embarrassment.
1: I think that some of the tawdry stories you know, may, may know, not apply in the same way. I'm sure organized crime exists in lending at certain levels, but, even, but in low-income communities, there are informal uh, lending arrangements, And it's not always the knee breakers uh, that, that, you know, you see in the popular image. I mean, in Latino communities, they're called prestamistas who make these small loans. It might be, uh, you know, just uh, a bodega owner or in some cases a sanitation guy who knows the neighborhood and so forth. So the informal lending at high cost still does exist, particularly in low-income areas. (laughs) I've
0: always been fascinated with alternative forms of lending, which I, I certainly mm-hmm. see as not good, but I think what's overlooked oftentimes is, is the human need that propels the yes. loan, and it's easy enough to say you shouldn't do that, and you shouldn't. But what if that's your only choice? That's right. I just wish credit unions would get a little more involved in, in this. and I, These are risky customers. I get it. But people like Bill Bynum and self-help are showing you can do this. It just takes a whole lot of energy <laughs> and a certain amount of wit and wisdom.
1: It does, but I think that they're um, that it's sustainable uh, if you do it right. And I think that the uh, the the non-financial rewards of serving those communities are pretty substantial. I mean, if you go, uh, to talk to some of the folks who work in, in community development credit unions and others, I think you'll find folks with a pretty high level of, of job satisfaction, that they're doing something that's meaningful and really, really helping people. And, you know, for, uh, in this world today, that's not such an easy situation to find.
0: Now, for a word from our sponsor. Are you looking to recapture members, increase your margins, live your mission? QCash is what you want to know about. That's because QCash delivers a fully automated small-dollar short-term credit solution that allows credit unions to meet members' short-term cash needs. Qzo, it's dedicated to helping credit unions build financial stability and health for its members. Check out QCash at QCash.com. Before we go, the CU2.0 podcast is looking for a few good sponsors to help us spread the word about the digital transformation of credit unions. You could be one of them. Contact Robert McGarvey for details at rjmcgarvey at gmail.com. First come, first served. Again, that's rjmcgarvey at gmail.com. The CU2.0 podcast.